0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Samo Budia, founder of Bismarck Analysis. Samo, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be on the show.
0: So, Samo, you, you study and your life's work is about why civilizations flourish, why they decay, and, and why there hasn't been an immortal uh, society yet. Is, is that a fair analysis of, of your life's work? Or how would you add or add it to that? And, and why have you chosen that as, as your life's work?
1: I was going to say that... Societies have ended before, and I think it's a rather interesting observation that over the last 10,000 years of recorded history, we've had something like 12 identifiable dark ages uh, just in Eurasia. This isn't counting things like uh, the end of the Mayan civilization and the new world, where records are much more sparse and we only have, say, one and a half thousand years of history. All efforts that people put towards improving the world or the distant future Or having an impact or becoming memorable have not only the natural lifespan uh, of our own biological lives, but our efforts that are contained in and stand on this larger foundation of the society in which we find ourselves embedded. Many of our achievements are only legible within this society, so I find it interesting that for people of high ambition, where they tend to want to think about this very long-term legacy, uh, there's so little thinking on this topic. So my question is, why why aren't more people interested? Why aren't more people dedicating uh, research and time and thought to this question?
0: And and what's the main idea that you want people to know or that, that you want to, to, to bring to the world that you think is under... Understudied, underexplored, or underappreciated, or people just disagree with you about. It.
1: Basically, the broad infrastructure of society. I think that uh, society is not automatic. I think it's fundamentally uh, an artificial process that we've constructed to a significant degree. Our civilization relies on cornerstone institutions and various kinds of knowledge uh, to persist into the indefinite future. These are not natural phenomena. Social engineering has been employed at every major reformation or transformation of society. Therefore, I think the appreciation for this infrastructure and also an understanding that we have to be intentional about its renewal rather than rely on society evolving in its own way. Society evolving in its own way is just the actions of other people uh, transforming it. So I think the basic idea is a civilization as a collection of symbiotic institutions and the institutions uh, being these artificial constructs created by you know long forgotten founders.
0: So back up for a second, you're of the philosophical viewpoint that, you know, more of the state of, you know, state of war by, by Hobbes rather than sort of no, Noble Savage by Rousseau that, you know, the default state is violence and institutions civilize us versus the default state is, is uh, you know, egalitarianism and institutions, you know, corrupt us.
1: I think that, you know, to view institutions as purely corrupting is to neglect how helpless we are as creatures when we're born into the world, right? As infants, we're shaped profoundly by our society and can help but exist in a society. Uh, we as individuals perhaps can transform it, but we're always in dialogue. So neither the noble savage nor the Hobbesian view quite captures it. I think there is a constructive, positive vision. Uh, for institutions. And I think this was perhaps better understood by previous societies. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, when you read Plato's Republic, uh, a book, sometimes people argue should be translated Plato's regime. He is as concerned with the psychology of the people in the state, as he is by how the polis, how the city state should function. And I think this profound way in which citizens are shaped by the polities they live in, Uh, that that's where I would throw my chips in. So this kind of view where human nature expresses itself differently in different societies.
0: So is it arguing for more of a a nurture over nature, or is it not really taking a stance on sort of the nurture nature?
1: Well, I certainly have opinions. I think almost everyone has opinions on that topic. I would say that there is such a thing as a human nature, but it has a fairly diverse set of expressions uh, you know, after all, a tiger in the wild and a tiger in captivity are going to display very different behaviors. Uh, lions can, of course, be trained to perform in the circus if we disregard the uh, ethical implications of it. And while humans perhaps are happier in some other arrangements, there's certainly, you know, material benefits to being trained to perform in, uh, you know, not the circus, but the economy as, as it exists today. So uh, I would say that the better view is that we come with hardware that has its very real limitations, perhaps even some pre-installed software, uh, but we can definitely hack, hack a lot of different cultures on top of it.
0: Yeah. And so why are so many institutions broken? And what separates institutions from Flourish from ones who are broken or, or decay?
1: Right. Flourishing institutions, I would argue, are uh, functional institutions. So this means that they fulfill uh, their given purpose. They also tend to be adaptive. So I believe that, you know, automated processes can't really process information the way human beings can. So if you have this purely bureaucratic system where people are collecting records uh, such as might exist in an organization like the IRS, perhaps it's a well-functioning machine. But without key uh, individuals that have the ability to transform and reform such an organization, it can truly be adaptive and change to uh, differing circumstances. So I think that when civilizational fail- failure has occurred in the past, it was because either the automated structure, these big you know bureaucratic structures, be it, say, the Catholic Church at one point in medieval history, or be it something like the IRS, they either broke down from lack of maintenance – Or they were functioning as designed, but their environment transformed. So I think to have flourishing institutions, you need to have flourishing people. You need to have individuals who understand the actual social fabric of the working of an organization. By this, I mean uh, how things get done. We all have this very rich, tacit knowledge uh, when we work in our own professional environment, but often have these very um, vague, imprecise thoughts about... Different domains of society where we just take the face value descriptions and run with them. Everyone's environment is quite information rich. Uh, I know of no organization where the written description of the organization and how it actually works are the same thing, and I've yet to hear a satisfying description of human social life. Right. Uh, in other words, the task of anthropology—that uh, is to you know study human beings as such—is incomplete. So as we operate with imperfect knowledge and we try to understand the world around us, those of us who are a little bit more successful at this task of understanding can build and redirect institutions so that they can adapt to any sort of changing circumstance that might arise. And, you know, the historical evidence for this is is quite solid. You have these uh, states that overcome uh, events like massive climate change, such as drought and so on, uh, they might undertake new irrigation projects, or they might compensate that irrigation is no longer viable by you know, conquering new lands, or they might uh, set up a system of grain storage. The difference between you know, a society or a civilization that fails because of natural resource constraints and the ones that succeed is often this adaptability to the changing parameters of both the natural and the geopolitical world around them.
0: You're squarely in the uh, great founder theory camp. You have, you have a whole manuscript called great founder theory, as opposed to the technological determinism camp. Does that imply that if Steve Jobs hadn't built Apple, someone else might not have uh, made the iPhone? Or, or does it apply to something different? And what are the implications of, of being in that camp?
1: That's a very interesting question. I think certain kinds of technological change are overdetermined given their given their context. But I think one of the clean distinctions we have to make is one of invention and adoption. Right? You might have an invention of the steam engine in uh, by Heron of Alexandria in the second century BC, but the steam engine is only massively adopted with the eighteenth century with Watt's steam engine and several others. So technologies and their potential they might always be there but societies will respond differently so i think founders don't necessarily transform society uh, as a whole on the technological dimension but they certainly need to know how to read society so when we have the you know invention of the printing press in china and in europe well you know china has nothing like the protestant reformation and the protestant reformation does kick off in china I think that with the iPhone in particular, it was a brilliant leap that easily might have been decades in the future before someone found that sort of product. If you think about it, the brilliance is in teaching the users what they wanted. No one was really asking for the kind of device Steve Jobs built. No one was expecting it, right? They were expecting uh, miniaturized, specialized devices closer to iPods than iPhones.
0: When you talk about great founder theory, you, you talk about people like Steve Jobs, but also political and governmental leaders. How, how should we, When you think about flourishing institutions, how should we think about the differences between what makes companies flourish and what makes governments flourish and, and the overlaps? And how similar or different should we think about those?
1: Well, I think there's a wide spectrum of institutions besides just technological and governmental. But since you put emphasis on these two, I think a good thing to remember is that at one point, all governments are a certain kind of startup. America's founding goes down to about 300 people gathering in Philadelphia in the Constitutional Convention, or perhaps an even smaller group of delegates from various states gathering and reaching the decision that independence is the right course of action. That actually happens on July 2nd, not July 4th. July 4th is just when uh, independence is announced. I think that the analogy strongly works in situations like that of Singapore, where you start off with low state capacity, so few bureaucracies. In that sort of situation, you might have, uh, you know, a founder archetype like Lee Kuan Yew. Or uh, for a more recent example, I think in Rwanda, Paul Kagame can easily be understood to be, you know, sort of a founding father of that country. Or in America's context, I think the founding fathers did actually End up determining for better or worse uh, this sort of broad outlines of what's going to happen. But much, much as with a company, right after the founders depart, their machinery is built. They don't necessarily foresee the full consequences of that machinery. I do think that even you know in the twentieth century and e- even now you know in two thousand nineteen, when the state capacity was higher, when objects like the IRS, uh, the Pentagon, NASA had already been built there was still room to build new ones. Uh, The best example is this sort of, well, you know, the best example is perhaps NASA itself or even the FBI itself. The FBI comes into existence basically because of the strong lobbying of uh, Jay Hoover who wants to create a police force that crosses state lines and uses a multifaceted PR campaign uh, using the concept of forensics as an argumentation for why local police forces that lack such laboratories can't possibly? rise to the challenge of organized crime, a, a challenge that existed in the 1930s. This is a justification that, you know, we as a culture have fully accepted. In 2019, we watch shows like CSI, and we can't imagine a world where the concept of scientific crime solving isn't integrated into our concept of justice. But that world existed just 80 or, or 90 years ago, at a time when airplanes were already flying and cars were driving on the street and people were listening to to radio. The innovation in government must necessarily also be cultural innovation. You create mandate for a new kind of service, a new kind of endeavor that is for the public good. You make it so that the public optics of this endeavor are positive and you find concrete political and social services you can provide to other governmental actors so they don't block it. So you can start with a situation where you have a small team of private individuals all the way to becoming the head of your own organization. An interesting example here, a second one to follow up the FBI example is that of NASA and von Neumann, who immediately after World War II is, you know, a glorified prisoner of war. He was designing the V2 rockets for for the Nazis before 1945 is brought over for Operation Paperclip, engages in what's essentially uh, dead-end research for the U.S. Navy, but partners up with Walt Disney to make an animated film called Man in Space. This is the start of his great PR campaign to pursue his real dream. His real dream was never creating weapons of war. It's just what paid the bills. What he wanted to do was go to space. And eventually he got to, and he was the first director of NASA. Eisenhower eventually even showed that film to his White House staff to get them on board for the political agenda of uh, creating NASA. Now, sure, you know, from Brown had to uh, come in at the right time and the right place. Missile research is dual-use technology, so it was possible to develop civilian rockets that, you know, send men to the moon, and they send a very strong signal to the Soviet Union if need be, we could deliver nuclear warheads to the Soviet Union. Our rockets are just that good. But without his intervention, we probably would not have had a civilian space agency. We probably would have had only a military space program.
0: You you mentioned Singapore Uh, for a certain segment of the charter city movement. They sort of have this view that democracy is, um, sort of inherently corrupt or inherently dysfunctional, I should say, uh, and that the utopia is hundreds or thousands of, of city-states, of Singapore is basically, of, uh, you know, of uh, different government uh, with different CEOs, sort of competitive governance and, and, and the ease to exit and alternate, you know, between the one that works best for you. Do you sympathize with, with that as utopia? How do you sort of respond to, to that idea?
1: I certainly think, and this is hardly controversial, that there are well and poorly functioning democracies around the world. I think we should always focus first on what is the quality of life and what is the quality of societal achievement uh, by a given society, by a given form of government, and only secondarily wonder whether this fits some ideological ideal. Even in the communist world, this isn't less well known today since the Cold War has ended, there were massive differences in quality of life between places such as East Germany or Yugoslavia or North Korea. Some are worse than others. Now, whether we think of things in a democ- democratic or a dictatorial uh, fashion, there's this vast, vast array of possible state formations that might come into existence. Looking at the United States today, it's clear that it has both democratic and non-democratic elements in its constitution. And by this, I actually mean not only the written document, the word constitution was originally used in political science and theory to describe the actual structure of power and governance of a given society. So when Aristotle, you know, in the fourth century is writing a treatise called the Constitution of Athens He's not being proscriptive, he's being descriptive. He is making a big case study to understand Athenian politics and describe them as best as possible and how this impacts the quality of life, the aspirations of the citizens and how this impacts the ability of Athens as a society to achieve desirable outcomes. I would say that there are systems we would not call democratic that, of course, also still have democratic elements in them, Arguably, all regimes require at least some democratic elements. At the end of the day, if the people, all the people, truly don't support your regime, how can it possibly stand? But there are certainly some regimes we would not call democratic, according to normal criteria, that I think are uh, functional governments, that are good places to live, and that perhaps we should learn from.
0: But what are some things we should learn
1: for the example of Singapore in particular, I think we underestimate the value of long term thinking combined with brilliant vision. I think we are too interested in process controls. There's a discussion that government stalemate and the sort of do nothing Congress are features rather than bugs. People are so worried about the negative outlier. And, you know, some people might see Trump as that outlier. There were people arguing Obama was that negative outlier. Do I think that's clearly not panned out? But I feel we have not paid enough attention to the positive potential of human organizations is best expressed by its positive outliers. And if you produce a system that by design constrains individuals and constrains humans, you have cut out that positive potential as much as you might have cut out the negative potential. So I think Singapore works great because there was a Lee Kuan Yew around. If there was not a Lee Kuan Yew around, the authoritarian government might have been very, very uh, negative. It might have ended up squandering some of Singapore's good advantages and natural advantages. But let's remember, when Singapore started off, its GDP per capita was lower than that of Jamaica. Today, Jamaica is a wonderful place to visit. It's a nice Caribbean country, but it's not a first world country. Of the states, of post-colonial states, Singapore is the only country to have traveled from third world to first. That's a remarkable achievement. And if we only endorse systems of government and sort of these kind of overly strict limitations on what you can and cannot do while in government, uh, we will cut out the positive potentialities of those kinds of transition to our own detriment.
0: And what is the main attractant, if you were optimizing a, or starting a new city or country or, or trying to make an existing city or country most attractive to the highest potential, to the outliers, as you put it, what brings them? I think you, in one of your interviews, you mentioned something that people don't think about a lot, which is fun or, or, or ways for them to meet you know, more of each other. Or How do you think about the, those qualities that, that bring those, those folks?
1: Right. One way to think about a city is that a city has a user experience, but the you know, sad or maybe realistic or possibly inspiring fact is the user experience of all the residents of the cities of a city does not matter equally. The city might, for example, be quite well optimized for the lives of those uh, working in the financial industry. A city might be very well optimized for those working in politics. If you're thinking of a city like D.C., right, Washington, D.C., Public infrastructure that's nominally serving millions of people might be designed a certain way to, say, make the trip from the financial district to the airport as fast as possible, even at notable public expense. Those sorts of minor details add up and help produce in various cities these very strong network effects. You want peers, people with who you exchange ideas, uh, who you can create a viable subculture, a space that makes your work as easy as possible. And since a single city can only optimize for so many things, uh, there are going to be a small number of globally relevant cities, and competition is going to be quite harsh. The people of the very highest talent have been very mobile long before the age of jet travel or even the age of rail. Uh, in medieval Europe or medieval China, people would move hundreds or thousands of miles to pursue specialized Specialized education or special economic or political opportunities, the higher your social capital, the more mobile you tend to be, the easier it is to pay the cost of uprooting yourself and moving somewhere else. Now, of course, sometimes moves can be also moved, uh, sometimes moves can also be driven by uh, desperation. But generally speaking, there's only a small number of cities in any given era that truly attract the most interesting people of their time. You know, ancient Greek Alexandria, London of the 18th century, uh, New York of the middle of the 20th century, and arguably of all the world cities, San Francisco right now still seems the biggest magnet for talent. We'll see how long that persists. Many things are uh, flawed about the city, but ultimately the user experience of uh, people who want to innovate in technology is still higher here despite all the drawbacks, uh, than almost anywhere else.
0: If you did design a city for for outliers, or if you were explicit about it, it seems that that would be very controversial, because we are sort of steeped in egalitarianism uh, naturally, culturally. And why are we steeped in egalitarianism naturally and culturally, do you think? I,
1: I think a very strong reason for that is that our politics are politics of scale, that were designed and operated in an era where it became possible to mobilize large armies, right? And you had these notable conscription-based armies emerging first in the 19th century. In such a context, you need the social technology and propaganda to tell people, you know, you're not fighting this war for, you know, the interests of a petty monarch. You're actually fighting this for the interests of your nation, which if you think about it, is really your own self-interest. How true this story is, is dubious. But whether it be war or accepting higher rates of taxation, I think we've come to be made to believe that the government serves us rather than we are resources that are disposed by the government. This is, if anything, the sort of critical view that we give when we study foreign autocracies, though even these autocracies today consider themselves ultimately in the service of the people. If you look at North Korea, it's called the People's Republic of North Korea. If you analyze North Korea, it seems very obvious that North Korean citizens are not even treated very well, but are uh, resources for the government to deploy one way or another. They, of course, impose some constraints on the system, but they don't really set the agenda of the country, its big sociopolitical or economic decisions. I would argue the US is more similar to this uh, than is usually perceived. I would argue that you know, the story of egalitarianism we have is is better and more realistic than the North Korean one, uh, but it's just as false. And that ultimately, it's a control mechanism.
0: What would it look like to be true?
1: <sighs> That's a fascinating question. I, you know, this also almost enters the realm of science fiction, right? Because as far as we can tell, almost all human societies have had a certain kind of elite It's only a question of the composition of this elite and its uh, relation uh, to the rest of society and the relevant worldview and institutions they built. But if we had a country that was responsive or truly egalitarian, I think for starters, uh, you know, you would see more economic redistribution, which might or might not be good for the economy. It really depends where and how you redistribute. But I'm going to say it would be relatively bad for prosperity. It would be relatively good for cultural expression and differentiation. Uh, there wouldn't be these strong concentrations of cultural power, right? And if you think about it, in a truly democratic society, Hollywood doesn't really exist, right? There's it would be very strange for there to be someone who's a famous actor known by fifty million people. That doesn't seem very you know equally distributed. It doesn't. It's not very local. It's not very in people's control. Ultimately, people don't have much of a say in what a you know Hollywood movie looks like. It's more a matter of uh, market research and uh, economic considerations, and sometimes the cultural biases there. So, if you think of things like uh, Hollywood, things like Harvard University, uh, things like the U.S. government itself, all of these structures would be radically more participatory, radically more ad hoc, uh, much less vertically integrated operating at much smaller scales because the coordination overhead in an egalitarian structure is just so much higher. So a truly egalitarian structure actually imposes great difficulties in coordinating 300 million people, uh, which is about the current population of the US. If you think about it, getting three people to agree is difficult, but doable. Uh, Getting three people to agree on everything, extremely difficult. Getting 300 people seems almost impossible How in the world would you get 300 million people to agree to, uh, I don't know, invade Iraq or start a trade war or perhaps try to impose carbon taxes on the planet? You could never do such a thing. Now, maybe the argument is we shouldn't do such things. But again, I like to point to the counterexamples, successes in public health, uh, such as the extermination of malaria in Southern Europe, Uh, hopefully other parts of the world as well, eventually. Or uh, things such as the Apollo, the Apollo missions. Uh, it seems human coordination can do wonderful things for humanity. So we should try to pursue it.
0: And it is interesting when we talk about equality and, and redistribution, equality of opportunity. It, it's really about uh, money and income and wealth and economics, but not really about status. Like I, I don't know, we don't really talk about redistributing status in the same way, at least not not explicitly,
1: right? Yeah, we we tend not to think about it even though arguably status is one of the things we want perhaps even more than money we certainly know of the concept of conspicuous consumption that's when you buy the nicest car in the neighborhood or try to buy very expensive clothing what you're doing there is straightforwardly trading money for standing for social regard and status so it seems to be on some level there are many people who pursue money primarily to gain status if you try to only redistribute material resources but weren't redistributing status in some strange social engineered structure, you wouldn't end up satisfying people that much, I think. You know, the typical human being doesn't need that much. You need a home, you need food, you need uh, safe drinking water air. And after that, most of the things, most of the material goods we uh, try to acquire, for which we work so hard, they're ultimately proxies and tools we use to achieve social ends. So if you achieve an equality of tools, but an inequality of social ends, people will be just as, satis- just as dissatisfied with that inequality as they are with current material inequality.
0: And for for cultures or societies that are much poorer than us or the US, but are, are happier, is it because they've, you know, they're more egalitarian when it comes to status or they've redistributed it or there's less inequality? Or how should we think about that?
1: Well, you know, we have to be very careful with measures of happiness. People, for example, like to give uh, Scandinavian societies as a positive example, as something to emulate. Uh, But, you know, the reports on life satisfaction differ radically between Denmark and Sweden, even though to our eyes, they seem, you know, quite comparable societies. I'm also going to point out that first world countries currently have a notably higher rate of diagnosed mental illnesses than many third world countries. This might simply be because we can now afford to diagnose mental illness, things like depression, that often have these consequences, such as the opioid addiction crisis in the US. But it could also be that human happiness is an elusive beast, not easily captured by broad economic or industrial indicators. If you give everyone a car, that might make people happy for a little bit. But then social life changes in response to the car. Maybe perhaps they now have to endure long commutes. Perhaps you can make the commutes less miserable by uh, having them listen to podcasts uh, and so on. But there is, I think, a complexity to social life that is very hard to reduce to a single one-fits-all formula. So I think industrial society, because industry, again, we talked about the difference between innovation and adoption. Industry is not invention. Industry is adoption. A single factory might supply the entire planet with goods, or if it doesn't supply the entire planet, there might uh, the entire planet there might be a single factory that supplies all of the U.S. with a certain good. I think the number of CPU foundries around the world is probably about a dozen. These are objects that produce things at scale. The Industrial Revolution it was uh, a revolution of scale, but. If happiness as such is, is subtle, subjective, differentiated, tied to your local social environment, that cannot be mass produced.
0: Do you, when we talk about the root of, I don't say envy, but a need for equality, do you sympathize with the Girardian explanation of sort of mimetic desire, and then I guess also subsequent scapegoating where humans don't do things because of their intrinsic worth, they, they, they value them because others value them? And the more you know, people have the same values, the more they become alike, the more vicious the robbery and the cycle escalates until there's chaos, and the sort of guilt hot potato that in order for people to restore order, they have to sacrifice someone, a scapegoat.
1: I think the Girardian cycle describes a real social phenomena, But I think Girard overreaches this in proposing that this as the main driving dynamic of humanity. To me, it seems one of the games people do in fact play. You can get rid of a lot of social stress by simply attributing all of the uh, social interpersonal ills people have uh, accumulated over decades of personal conflict to this magical cause to do you know a witch or a warlock or the heretic but you know this is just one existing social technology that unfortunately plays out in society there are other social technologies we might use and which factors dominate in these dynamics again depends on the specifics of a given society I think that in a society of a mass consumption, where we try to all compete for a mass audience, the Girardian explanation is more powerful than in a more differentiated society that you know, had lower political participation or lower consumerism. I think in those societies, different dynamics would dominate. If you look at the dynamics of the Chinese Communist Party, I think they are not Girardian dynamics of hunting scapegoats, though, of course, that is occasionally used in things like short trials and so on. The dominant dynamic is one of patronage, where you have an official that is protecting younger officials, grooming them to to fill positions. Once those positions are filled, they still owe favors and they owe their connections to the uh, more senior officials. So the senior official, by distributing uh, jobs and sometimes material resources, has become more powerful than their nominal title might suggest. And then they might try to build a simple coalition to, in a party committee vote, get themselves promoted to a higher position, perhaps all the way to the top one that was so uh, skillfully reached by Xi through decades of such politicking. These dynamics aren't easily reducible to each other. So I think I would disagree with uh, scapegoating as the fundamental dynamic, but I would warmly recommend Girard's work to people uh, for reading and thought.
0: What is your best explanation, biological or otherwise, for why it seems people would rather be poor, but equal or egalitarian rather than be richer, but have vast you know, inequalities.
1: There are several dynamics here. I think the first one is people like victory. So I think people cheer on inequality where it seems like they can be part of the winning team and cheer on equality when it seems like they can be part of the winning team. So it's something perhaps very simple, some sort of dominance dynamic. You know, there are m- many of us, few of you. The few can easily be defeated by the many. So would go this very you know basic intuition we all share. But the other one is perhaps something like we crave social relations where it seems to us that we personally can affiliate with the highest status individuals. Ideally, we want to be them. But when that's not possible, we try to gain the favor of the popular ones. I think that egalitarianism is usually in a political context a tool where we can try to sort of reduce one inequality in order to get the political fuel to build a new one again you know the history of revolution i'm afraid backs me up on this where in the aftermath of the french revolution it didn't take long for a committee of public safety to establish a rule far more tyrannical than that of louis the 14th and soon after the committee of public safety napoleon is crowned emperor so much for undermining of hierarchy, I think egalitarianism is often a uh, call to attack the previous status hierarchy. And on a basic biological level, we don't ever expect the status hierarchies to go away. So we attack hierarchy because the hope is that once this hierarchy is torn down on the level playing field, we will be able to establish a new hierarchy that favors us more.
0: Question is how, how would you make the idea that we should prioritize outliers because they you know create most of the the wealth uh, or most of the uh, you know benefits for society? How would you make that palatable for for mass audience, or would you do it sort of indirectly? Because you know justice and egalitarianism seem you know you know Martin Luther King et cetera all these leaders it seemed much more inspiring than sort of. You know, prosperity. Like prosperity, seems harder to to internalize because maybe we're not wired to think on that sort of macro coordination level versus a more communal, you know, tribal, egalitarian level. How how would you make uh, that palatable, or would you just try to disguise it? <laughs> you know, like Tyler Cowan favors promoting economic growth via promoting Mormonism you know, religion. Uh, so he he sort of disguises it that way.
1: Well, uh, I would say that I don't think you necessarily have to disguise it. You have to make the process of creation and the legitimacy of creation very, very legible. So this is in a way in which I think that you know, almost you know, the cult or the myth of Steve Jobs notably helped legitimize a large new cohort of founders. So I think straightforwardly, they become the sort of like uh, symbols of positive, productive, pro-social outliers. If the only story we have. For why someone might be exceptional is that they are depriving others of opportunity rather than someone is exceptional. They reach for all of us for humanity as a whole opportunities that otherwise couldn't be reached. You know, if, if you only have the first story, but not the second one, you have a very hostile environment. It's very hard to justify exceptional achievement. But if you have the second one, a cultural image and understanding that more so than a straightforward box-to-box equality, what we should be searching for is a universalized flourishing of human beings. And the flourishing of human beings ends up looking notably different uh, individual to individual. And some of the individuals will write exceptional symphonies and uh, other individuals might become very great good runners. Other individuals still might become very good at understanding the industrial process, very good at designing new factories, and so on. This understanding of a common humanity and a desire for the flourishing of all of humanity, together with the understanding of the vitality of the productivity of outlier individuals for human flourishing, I think that allows us to sort of square the circle. This allows us to bypass a lot of destructive tendencies that might be envy-driven and pursue positive positive outcomes. Let's remember, after all, societies can combine this in creative ways. We might think of, for example, uh, Sweden as a relatively more egalitarian society compared to the U.S., uh, but it's also home of the Nobel Prize, a prize explicitly designed to set people apart, to set exceptional scientists apart from merely normal scientists to try to reward such behavior.
0: Yeah, the you, one thing you, you write about it is theories of history and why it's so difficult to have coherent theories of history now, most people sort of, or coherent universal th- uh, theories of history, sort of intro to that. What, what's your simple, you know, most simplified version for why Obama won and then why Trump won? And And to some extent, were these inevitable or do you not see it that way?
1: I think neither victory was inevitable. I think both victories were driven to a significant extent by two personalities that took very different approaches to social media. I think today, you know, we almost blame social media for the victory of Trump. Well, you know, people were praising social media for uh, Obama's victory. Certainly, they used social media radically differently. And even if social media didn't didn't exist, they might have still found the right political opportunities to succeed. I think that theories of history are difficult because they're difficult to get right uh, because you can't examine many counterfactual cases. You have to find analogous cases throughout the historical record and decide which of these are actually analogous, which are not analogous. But nearly everyone, when they examine their motivation for action or when they uh, try to justify their actions to others, will invoke an implicit theory of history. So we all have them. We all believe that, oh, you know ultimately human politics doesn 't matter. What truly matters is you know the advance and the advancement of technology, or on the other hand, someone might be, well, you know the material advancement of society doesn 't truly matter. What actually matters is you know our spiritual fulfillment or you know social justice of a certain kind and social progress and social progress you know. you mentioned Martin Luther King earlier, he has this nice quote, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's a theory of history. I'm not saying it's correct. I'm not saying it's incorrect. But nearly all of these exceptional outliers have uh, a belief in the historicity uh, of of their work very viscerally. And almost all individuals, you know, everyday people when we think about the world, we to ourselves invoke history. We tell ourselves stories such as, well, you know, uh, climate change is extremely important. Uh, whenever you've had massive climactic change in the history uh, of the world, civilizations have tended to fall, right? Like you, 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 can't. societies can collapse in response to environmental shocks. We don't want our society to collapse. So people make these arguments either in, explicitly, implicitly, uh, and they drive actions which widely believed theory of history sorry which theories of history are widely believed has massive impact especially for the behavior of uh, of intellectuals for the behavior of elites but also for the behavior of uh, people at scale uh, a good example of this might be the uh, relative popularity of marxism among early 20th century intellectuals uh, this had you know many downstream consequences such as uh, it became relatively easy for the soviet union uh, to find spies in the Manhattan Project, allowing the Soviet Union to acquire the blueprints uh, for America's superweapon almost immediately after the war. But you know, you also have things such as the rise of Christianity altering Roman elites forever, or the popularity of Protestant arguments among European nobility, resulting in a, you know a split between Northern and Southern Europe. These theories can be changed, and I think it's not, however, the case that all of them are equally valid. I think something like a scientific understanding of human societies as possible. We just are not, we've not reached it yet. Once we do, and even before we do, these theories are not all equally correct or incorrect. Theories that are closer to the actual structure of reality or that are, um, can be used to mobilize more people or a higher quality people, uh, these theories of history shape uh, the course of history itself.
0: And do do you have a quick view on on the Martin Luther King, uh, you know, theory of history and, and zooming out, what what is the best version of history that we have or the one that you are most (laughs) sympathetic to?
1: I'm skeptical of moral progress as an automatic process. What I believe is different civilizations and societies have different moral values and they can work out these values closer and closer to their societal ideal over time uh, until they collapse. Whether in the big picture, uh, the universe itself is driving towards objective morality. Seems almost outside the scope of human history, right? It would be then as true of uh, of quarks and stars as it would be of human beings. So I feel that's almost making a metaphysical claim. I think at this point we have to remember Martin Luther King, you know, was a was a Protestant Christian, perhaps a liberal Protestant Christian, but he was a Christian. So his statement is straightforwardly a religious uh, statement. I think I would be more of a of a kind of polytheist, and would say that there are many very powerful value systems that can come to perfect themselves over time, and that they organize human societies, values, cognition differently. And we are currently living in a uh, contingent rather than necessary civilization. And if we want, you know, our current set of uh, you know values, goals, uh, aspirations to last. We should probably see to it that our world system, our civilization, lasts, because the next one is unlikely to value the same things.
0: It seems that the dominant theory that that has you know taken hearts and minds today and and for, for the last while is progressivism, and that that's come from the the Whigs in, in the 18th century, which basically is egalitarian values and democratic governments, not just as the moral you know, beacon, but also as, as the most effective t- type of governments. And there's this, this movement, very small, you know, fringe movement, neo-reactionary movement, also the, called the dark enlightenment, maybe you're familiar with them, that is sort of, you know, says that, that democracy is, is not the most effective style of government, that things should look more like Singapore. And it's also not clear that it's the most moral uh, form. And the big implication here is that, uh, the progressive movement sort of ascribes to uh, the mistake theory you know the mistake versus conflict theory which is the mistake theory says that you know the conflict that we have mostly results because we don't either have the right knowledge or we don't have the right resources to just get along but if we had the right resources or or, or knowledge we would all get along whereas conflict theory says we have you know just conflict is zero sum we fight over resources and we you know the truth is that, that's the truth, and so we shouldn't prioritize the truth, or we'll just you know have more conflict. And, and the, the the goal is to kind of disguise that that things are all zero sum uh, because conflict is is inherent. How would you respond to my wording of, of that duality and 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 to the ideas therein?
1: Well, I think there have been um, there was, you know in the early internet there was a, a flourishing of alternative thinking in all sorts of interesting directions. I think you know characterizing the CU of progress as being, you know, central to the development of our society. I do think this is uh, this is the dominant worldview and, you know, has been uh, for at least the last 80 to 90 years, even predating World War II, arguably World War II is a deviation from that trend. But I, I, I think that the reality is that the world is not purely positive some, but it's also not purely negative some. I think mixed sum describes the world, including our social life, the best. After all, you know, the very best way to be prepared for a negative sum conflict like, you know, possibly war or business competition is to spend most of your time uh, playing positive sum games, such as economic development, right, prepares you and sets you up for war much better. Sometimes butter doesn't just make you fat, it makes you, you know, strong, prepared and have a a well-functioning economy come times of war. Or, you know, in a business context, if you're hyper competitive in the market, perhaps this is good. Uh, but if you're hyper competitive at the workplace, you might just end up destroying workplace culture. So the true challenge I think is balancing this so that it's appropriate to the situation so that you can easily smoothly adapt from the positive sum game to a more negative sum environment if that arises or to rise from a negative-sum environment to create islands of positive-sum, uh, because that positive-sum produces ultimately the resources that uh, keep you safe or allow you to uh, defeat negative-sum situations. I think that you know there's uh, democracy has so far uh, stood several decades of uh, a kind of test of history, though what we mean by the word democracy has, of course, changed massively over 200 years. That's why I say a few decades, I think, 20th century societies and states and governments, because of mass media, implementing uh, the political agendas of these very powerful people, you know, uh, be they Walt Disney, or, uh, you know, some less savory users of uh, mass media, can't really be straightforwardly compared to 18th century societies. They exist at a notably higher level of uh, state capacity. And again, many awful things can be done in the name of democracy. Uh, as, you know, perhaps we learned in the early 21st century, uh, I don't tend to comment much on politics, but I'm going to say, you know, the the Iraq War was clearly just a pointless waste of uh, of lives and funds. It didn't advance American geopolitical interests well. It, didn't, it It did not advance Iraqi interests very well. It should discredit at least the axiomatic view that, We should expect a democracy hiding uh, under, you know, under every tyrant's boot. You know, you remove the tyrant's boot, then there's going to be a democracy flourishing. I think that that view certainly has to be discredited and it can lead to a lot of suffering. But that's, you know, that's foreign policy. Domestically, economically, technologically, you know, democracy has both positives and negatives. Positives would be that in a democracy, it's very easy to make the argument For uh, mass consumerism, whether we like it or not, mass consumerism is what enables uh, centralized production in factories to be economical, right? For every Tesla that rolls out of uh, a Tesla factory, uh, for every machine of that kind, for every car on the assembly line, there are 50 to 100 machines, each as complicated as that one car. It would never make sense to build a factory to build a single car. It only makes sense to build a factory to build a million cars. That's what recuperates the initial investment on those much more complicated machines. And of course, those machines are themselves produced in factories, and eventually it bottoms out in relatively small workshops. But in a way, democracy and industrialization were natural partners especially if you consider that, you know, perhaps there are some structural similarities between uh, fascism, democracy and communism, uh, all of them being mass political movements. In a real way, however, we live in a post-industrial society, and I think it remains to be discovered what the most natural political partner to uh, post-industrial economies of attention and scale are. They might end up looking notably different, not just than the United States, but notably different from China, which is often set up as this, you know, future alternative to the U.S. And certainly, you know, seems to have some some strong advantages over the U.S.
0: You know, Peter Thiel ha- uh, had this podcast with Eric Weinstein yesterday where he talked about, uh, he had this quote that the president is like the mayor of the U.S., but like the dictator of the world. And so far, foreign policy <laughs> is, uh, is it, or the most, certainly the most powerful person in the world, so foreign policy is is really where a a U.S. president can have a lot of leverage. Given that, or if you agree with that, what would your recommendation for U.S. foreign policy be uh, moving forward? And I'm curious, looking back, if you think any of the wars of the last 100 years made sense, if you would have done them again.
1: (laughs) I think that a lot of restraint makes sense. I think some of the wars have made sense. It can be very difficult to tell which ones. Again, counterfactuals are difficult. I think arguably the U.S. did have vital geopolitical interests in intervening in Europe during World War II. I think arguably some aspects of containment policy made sense, especially in the European context and the Middle Eastern contexts. I think in the Asian context, they didn't matter much. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. I think the Korean War probably ultimately was not worth fighting. Uh, obviously, you know, Vietnam was probably not worth fighting. I think probably guaranteeing Taiwan was was worthwhile or when it lasted. It's interesting that the foreign policy can be so capricious, right? You would assume that this would be treated with some sort of trepidation where we would try to lock up the international dimension more so as to have a country that is uh, capable of making and keeping commitments. Regardless of what the political winds happen to be at a particular time, with low capriciousness, with a reluctance to go to war except under extreme necessity, and to rather have a government that can, uh, you know, easily work domestically. So my recommendation would be perhaps enhance presidential power at home and uh, disperse it abroad.
0: And, and you mentioned you, you China has some strengths relative to U.S. What's going to determine whether U.S. or China, you know? ahead in the next you know, decades? Uh, and would your advice also be restraint for, for China?
1: I think for China, uh, it has the very difficult problem of needing to not provoke the United States where the United States is provokable, but in a not very clear pattern. I think any sort of military conflict for the foreseeable future in, uh, say, the Indian Ocean or East Africa or Southeast Asia is one that China is relatively likely to lose. I'm here positing uh, a limited war, you know, the equivalent of uh, bombing runs or some ships fighting. I don't actually expect anyone would go for uh, a full war between the two sides. I think that China's key challenges will probably rest in they will run out of possible sources of growth. And they, as a society, seem to be as dependent on the promise of growth as Western society is. And the U S all things considered still has an advantage in innovation. There are a few niche areas where China might pull ahead, such as biotechnology Uh, again, in particular because of different values in Chinese society, the concept of say engineering, genetically engineering humans for higher intelligence will be more acceptable there than it is here. Uh, So if that pans out, they might find, you know, their killer application but in the absence of such niche areas where we have greater difficulty pursuing better technology, uh, I think the US is better positioned for growth. And so, you know, what happens is uh, there is a sphere of interest around China, probably East Asia, probably Southeast Asia, probably East Africa. But the US also has its sphere of influence, and it's probably in uh, Western Europe, in Latin America, in parts of the Middle East. And these two relatively large blocks reach a new equilibrium, so one shifted towards China one or two degrees rather than a world where China is as dominant as the u s was say ten or twenty years ago. So I think it's going to be a, a kind of a bipolar world order for a while to come
0: so i it, it, I posit it, and I curious if you agree that the the what a lot of was going to determine the winner is is you know, each country's ability to uh, have technological innovation and, and thus economic growth. And, and, and Peter Thiel has this view that, you know, since the 1970s or so, we've uh, stagnated significantly, not just the, the, uh, the economy, but also our ambitions. So both for cultural and structural reasons, you know, we're, we're in a much worse place from a uh, technological growth and innovation perspective. I'm curious. Broadly, if you uh, agree with that view, he also has the view that there's sort of a globalization versus innovation access, axis. that sort of innovation is from zero to one and globalization is just copying. Uh, and so those are a bit at odds and we're in a globalization era, but not in an innovation era. I'm curious if you agree with that. And I'm curious broadly where you you know, might differ from Peter Thiel if at all.
1: I think that the history of transport technology shows that technologies are centralizing forces let me explain what I mean by centralization. As soon as you have faster travel, more can be done in a single place. So this means that you've transformed, you know, perhaps a a county into a city, and eventually you transform a country into a single city, and eventually transform the world into a single city or a single village. I think that if we have technological innovation, the result will be yes and yes. Technological innovation will as a necessary consequence lead to more globalization, since I think technology is inherently centralizing and centralization thrives at scale. I do agree that globalization as such cuts against innovation, so perhaps what we have is a uh, self-extinguishing process, not so much the exponential curve occurs while well, uh, but the S-curve of diminishing returns to complexity, perhaps closer to something like Tainter's model. So my view would be that we will have a retreat from globalization followed by some flurry of new local innovation, eventually followed by a new era of globalization.
0: So, does that mean that the world uh, gets more decentralized over time? And I'm, I'm curious, you know, Peter too, also, you know, frames that as, you know, centralizing for you being AI uh, and then decentralized, of course, being sort of the crypto movement. And if you look at some of our problems as, you know, as a species today, you know, in nuclear proliferation, AI, uh, climate change, these are global you know, problems requiring sort of global governance or global coordination. So, so I'm curious if you, you know, if you think the future is more decentralized or, or centralized and how that plays out.
1: Oh, I think I'm a little bit of a, of a heretic, especially in Silicon Valley. I think the future is much more centralized. And I think the reason is because information technology in particular has made the world much more legible. And especially bureaucratic legibility lends itself to taking things out of the hands of humans and giving these things in the hands of processes processes have unlimited attention. Humans have limited attention. Therefore, eventually, most information processing uh, becomes central. And once you've done that, once the advantage of local knowledge is uh, obliterated, uh, at that point, there's only you know, the raw economy of, uh, of industrial scale. And then you want to scale it as much as possible.
0: You, one thing you, you write a lot about is the succession problem if you're trying to maximize the number of outliers, it seems that wealthy people have less kids on average. Uh, and if you think that you know there's some correlation between you know wealth and, and likelihood of outliers, do you think that we should care about the total fertility rate?
1: Oh, interesting. You know, I think we underestimate the value of family experience and dynasties in particular. You know, we have pseudo political dynasties. We have also scientific dynasties. You know, say Charles Darwin. Of all people, ironically, came from a family of high achievers. Uh, now, whether this is nature or nurture doesn't matter that much, but it is—it is true that I think if exceptional people uh, don't end up having children, they don't end up thinking of the problems that parents who have children might have, and they won't think about what's necessary for the human replenishment of society. So, I think it's important for societies to have above replacement fertility, so to have like a structurally healthy society so that the old don't come to dominate societal agendas too much. And I think it's important as a consequence uh, for elites to have at least some experience living with children to keep, take these considerations into account. And then, as a side benefit, because they have children, uh, you know, these children are disproportionately likely due to their life opportunities, to perhaps become highly skilled. Now, of course, you you have to balance this where you might have a success of uh, transferring wealth or power without a success of transferring uh, skill or responsibility. And I would consider those succession failures. Uh, That's why I've explored interesting models, such as uh, the ones used by the five good emperors in the Roman Empire, Uh, which is a system of uh, uh, adoption where you basically take a talented person who's already an adult, you adopt them, and then in the Roman context, they socially made them uh, your child and the heir to both your name, so your brand, and your social connections, and also your property. Imagine if today we had such a legal mechanism in the US. I I actually think it might be the very, it seems strictly superior to tenure. Let's put it that way.
0: So, last question. For your point earlier about you know the world becoming more centralized, are you thus unsympathetic to the the crypto narrative or utopia that uh, you know money will become unbundled or uncoupled from state and uh, the sort of sovereign individual thesis of a you know more decentralized internet? And then in in closing, closing for people who want to go deeper on, on your ideas particularly in Silicon Valley, where most of our listeners are, what do you think a venture capital firm can can most take or should most look into uh, your ideas or Silicon Valley at large, uh, trying to maximize innovation?
1: I would say that it's difficult to say whether it's sympathetic or non-sympathetic. I think that there are many times where I wish we had a much more decentralized society on a number of dimensions. I just don't expect it to happen. And I think we should, uh, we should bet accordingly. I further think that You know, if you want to explore some of my ideas, I would recommend the essay, Functional Institutions Are the Exception. You know, that's a good place to start. And the other one is my essay on, you know, how Roman emperors handled the succession problem. Intellectual uh, Dark Matter might be a third essay that's very interesting where I explore uh, the unseen knowledge in society.
0: Uh Samo, thank you so much for, for coming to this podcast. This has been a great episode. I'll I'll put your uh, your your medium and, and Twitter in the show notes so people can, can follow along. Thank you for joining.
1: Uh, thank you for inviting me on the show.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.